Welcome to this bloody business. I'm your host, indie filmmaker Andrew Johnson Schmidt. Each episode, we talk to the creative people behind the movies that make us scream in terror and delight. From the best boy to the final girl, these are the people who bring our nightmares to life. On tonight's episode, we're talking to Irish character actor and raconteur Morgan C. Jones. Fans of Shudder may know him as Charlie, the ill-fated drunk-turned-vampire in Boys from County Hell, an Irish indie vampire flick that came out during the pandemic. Before that, he's been a steady working actor in television, film, and radio theater, including a stint as Cyril, the supernatural shapeshifter in the form of a giant rabbit on RTE. What's it like playing multiple forms of the supernatural? And what's the trick to acting with practical effects? Let's ask the man who makes his living doing both. Here's my interview with Morgan C. Jones. Welcome to the show, Morgan C. Jones, actor extraordinaire. Yeah, it's very nice to be here. Actor, I'll give you actor. Extraordinaire, not so sure. (laughs) So, uh, folks on uh, Shudder here in the U.S. uh, are used to having horror films come up that are from countries that they don't normally think of horror coming from. And uh, we had our jolt of uh, Irish horror uh, come to us during the uh, pandemic. Suddenly uh, a voice from another continent with uh, boys from County hell uh, dated for 2020, that propitious year. Uh, so people were looking at it and 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 saying, "Oh, they got horror in Ireland too." Well, of course they have horror from Ireland. Yeah, it's uh, well, apart from anything else, in many ways, um, the whole Dracula story, that whole franchise, kicked off with Bram Stoker, um, who was a, a you know an Irish theatre manager and impresario and writer and creative person. And um, oddly enough, he his house that he grew up in is uh, number 14, I think, Marino Terrace. Beautiful um, screen of, uh, you know, houses from about the late 1700s, early 1800s, late 17, I think. Um, as just marvelous, beautiful houses. That was the first place, uh, not that house, but the house next door to it was the first place I lived with my wife um, when we got together. And uh, so the the whole Bram Stoker thing, the Dracula mill, I used to, you know, I'd be looking out the window, still stoned in the morning. uh, (laughs) You'd see all of these coach loads of people getting out and taking photographs of the house next door. And you'd be like, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, it's like... But uh, next door. So um, so that, and that, that's, you know, so Bram Stoker Park. So that's all of that thing. And, um, and of course, uh, the backstory of Boys from County Hell is that it's uh, that he, that Stoker stole the legend of Abertach, who's an Irish vampire demon. And again, that, that, that whole legend exists. I'm not sure. I vaguely remember. I probably, they probably told me when we were filming it, that whether or not there is an actual connection or whether it was just, no, we thought we'd have a great story. Um, you know, so, um, 
but uh, yeah, so so it, it's it's an Irish it is an Irish story. I'm sorry, this whole Vlad the Impaler thing, as far as we're concerned, the Romanians took that to get you know that's that's give us back that's our tourist dollars you're taking you bastards. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and the in the in the movie, uh, they they play on that. You know, the idea that. Uh, what we think of as a horror story uh, of Dracula uh, had been cherry picked out of that, you know, uh, folk story, that folk horror. Yeah. Um, but there were differences thrown in there that like uh, uh, Stoker had been like, well, I'll use this bit, but I won't use that bit. Yeah. Like that, that the way to, to do the vampire, to take them down is to pile stones on them as opposed yeah. to, you know, steak or whatever. We were much more straightforward all over Europe, here, everywhere. It's just, how do we kill them? Put a bloody big rock on them. Make sure to stick a rock in their mouth. That'll stop them coming back. So there's all of, yeah, we, that's, that's what we do in Europe. Did, and well, still do sometimes. <laughs> Politics. Uh, yeah. So Morgan C. Jones, you, you were in it. You played this memorable character, uh, Charlie Hart, uh, yeah. who's uh, a... How would you how would you describe Charlie? Is he the town drunk or what is he? Yeah, he's the town drunk. He's I mean, every town has them. Um, I mean, I've, I've I've driven through the Midwest of your fine country, and uh, you know, you, this the parallels you see, and you can see them all over. If you drive through any country in Europe, you get into a small country town, and there's somebody who. It's it's it, Charlie's story is not the man who had potential and messed it up. Charlie's one of those guys who's everywhere. He never had any potential. God love him. And he just crawled into a bottle and never came out. So it's just that, yeah, he is. He's a very sad, weak, pathetic, dependent, utterly useless creature, really. But likable enough. Yeah. There's no harm in him. You well, could at first. <laughs> well, you could almost see him as being the seeds of the character Renfield in Stoker's novel. You know, the weak person who ends up becoming the flunky for the vampire. Yeah, yeah. I um, I probably should have bitched about that and got them to flesh that aspect out. But no, <laughs> I thought he was lovely the way he was. He, it's um, it is that kind of yeah Renfield. He there, there's a there's a Renfield quality. But uh, but of course, Charlie and spoilers ahead, kids. Charlie doesn't um, doesn't have to wait and beg for years fruitlessly to become one of the chosen children of the night. It happens a bit quicker for poor old Chaz. <laughs> <laughs> well, to double back here for a sec, what path led you to Charlie to that character? Or how how does your creative life come along? Um, well, I, um, I started, uh, it, well, the first thing I did really in terms of entertainment when I was about 16, I, I started as a, a stand-up comedian. Um, and, uh, I was also, I was playing in a couple of bands, but the, it, it was actually, I was venal. It was, you know, you, you have great fun playing with a band, but you know, if there's only 20 quid at the door and there's five of you, that's one drink each even back then. In fact, it wasn't even a drink each. But uh, yeah, so if you're if there's one of you and you're the stand-up, you go, well, I'm going to eat tonight. 
Um, so, uh, but I, I then I went to, wound up in film school, um, had a couple of straight jobs out of college. Um, from about the age of, oh, I think, let me see, my daughter's 32. I was 21, maybe 22. And I, um, uh, I, I got tired of straight work and, and went back to being a stand-up comedian. There was a, a burgeoning stand-up circuit started here. And from that, I went, wound up in, in television doing a lot of uh, political satire and sketch comedy. Then had some career defining, defining, um, tragically unfunny projects that I was involved in for the state broadcaster uh, that strengthened my resolve to leave comedy. I never really wanted to be a comedian. It was just something I, I was able to do. Um, uh, it was all it was all with a, a viewpoint to getting work as an actor. But back in the 80s, there was no, you know, when I left college, if you didn't get into drama school, you couldn't be an actor. And there was only two drama schools really in the country. And I wasn't, you know, the, my parents were terribly supportive. But if I'd gone to them and said, you know, I'd like to be an actor and I could go to London and they were going to get that, you know. So, <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, that's why I went to film school, because I thought, um you know, if I can't get into drama school, I get into film school and somebody will need somebody to be in stuff. So I actually got a lot of, I, I learned how to, how to make films, but I also got a lot of practice on the side of the lens I wanted to be. And then stand up came along and it was, you know, it was a good way of, you know, feeding a family. Um, and, you know, the, the television satire work and stuff, a lot of radio work and everything. But uh, it, it was always trying to get into, in, into straight acting. So eventually around 94, Three ninety four, I think I jumped ship and and did some straight theatre. Uh, well, I mean, you know, not straight theatre. You know, summer stuff that you know the tourists and the summer audiences love. I mean, it, as from my viewpoint, it was fucking pantomime. You know, it wasn't um, you know? And I mean that with the greatest respect. And a lot all the other actors involved certainly would describe the same shows. Because I know, because I was there ten, for 10 weeks, bitching along with them, going, when do we get out of this? Um, and well, then eventually started getting film work. So, um, but I did, for years, I didn't do anything but radio then, when my kids were young. Yeah. Now, the first time I heard you was on Crazy Dog Audio Theater, especially mm -hmm. playing Cyril the Puka, which is, yeah. for, for an American like obviously the best puka characterization i've ever heard oh thank you thank you very much i just stole him from cyril cusack <laughs> I was, I was character actor that was this all it was because roger gregg who was is the the genius behind all of the crazy dog stuff um years ago he he rang me and you know roger always roger to this day roger well he's one of my dearest friends but when he rings you, you're not sure if he's asking you to help him bury somebody or offer you a job. You know, it's like, you know, so who, who can you do? What kind of, what kind of voices can you do? You know, this is going back years ago. And it's just, you know, I'm looking for somebody for, you know, uh, 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 this Puka character called Cyril. And I immediately thought Cyril Cusack. And I said, well, okay, he could talk like that. And he's a great, you know, just somebody who really wants to get you into trouble, but doesn't want to look like they're getting into trouble. <laughs> and Roger went, yes, that's him. So that's how he came along, and uh, and he started. He was a 
for Roger, he he started as a very small feature of Bill Lizard, and then he became. Uh, as with so many of the collaborations I've done with Roger, Roger will seize on something and go, oh, God, I've written more for you. And it's just great, you know. I love writers and producers that do, do that because I, I have very few of them in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a six-foot-tall, rabbit-shaped puka um, and with the joie de vie. Like, I'll never forget him, uh, uh, you know, calling out to the bar. Uh yeah, you know, I think just that might have been one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is the supernatural. So, so infrequently has joie de vie in in uh, productions. Scary, yeah. yes. Uh, mystical, but joie de vie, not quite as much. Yeah. Well, that's part of a huge. I have to say now, it's all down to Roger Gregg. Um, and everything, everything in those uh, in the Crazy Dogs is. Um, if not finely crafted by him, uh, you know, there are, there's obviously a certain amount of collaboration and, you know, I, could I try this? Could we try that? Um, but very seldom does Roger, would you suggest something and would Roger go, yes, absolutely. He's far more likely to go, mm. and he'll have a little think and he'll debate with himself. And it won't take him weeks to come back, but he'll go, yeah, do that. Yeah. But he knows that he's got his take in the can already. So, you know, it's okay. Let the moron play. I'm <laughs> surrounded by dummies. <laughs> well, so from that work, what led you into uh, this production, Boys from County Hell? Well, Boys from County Hell is just a part of a, you know, I, I've, since about 2013 when I left the voice booth because my kids were all old enough and uh, the recession had bitten that I had to get back before a camera and back on stage. Uh, sad to say that's my fallback. You know, that's, that's, you know, there's no other work coming in. What do you do? I don't know. Acting. All oh, lots of actors eat, don't they? No. Um, <laughs> but, uh, boys, we hell really. It's just, uh, um, my, my, I have a very good agent. Um, and they, the agency sent me this, uh, casting offer and, and I'm not in a position that I'll, I've never really been in a position to go, no, I, I will, I'm not interested. I'm, you know, and, and it's, and it wasn't like it was an offer. It was like anything else. It was like, no, do an audition. And I, I, a lot of actors bitch about auditions. I quite like them. I think it's part of the job. In fact, the big part of the job is finding work. You know, the, the, the fun part of the job is getting work and having it most of the time. But um, the but I, so I got an email um, from uh, from the agent, and uh, I did a, I, I do all of my self tapes here in the studio, and I did that one. Do you prefer self tape over the old school in the room? I do because there's a point where when you. I mean, there's a. It depends. There's not many. You know, there's the there's the the Hollywood idea of a casting session, 
where, you know, an actor will go in and try something and the casting director will go, well, maybe you could try this. Or, or somebody will go, oh, you're brilliant. And none of that happens. <laughs> they, they, they will go and you'll, you'll occasionally you'll go and you'll do your stuff. Well, you go and you have a little chat and you usually know them. It's very nice. And, and they go, okay, well, you, you want to do this? And go, yeah, sure. And you, and you do it. And, um, and sometimes they go, yeah, would you do that again? Would you try, would you try it again? Would you go faster? But there's none of never any. I just had a wonderful idea. Could you try it as I don't know a, a Georgian monkey? You know <laughs> that doesn't. Um, so so of course that's not going to happen here when I'm doing a self tape. Um, and a lot of the time, actually, I've gotten to, I've gotten it down to, you know, I, I will I will occasionally do. I've, I've my my sons are actors and. Um, they will occasionally do self-tapes with me. I will occasionally do self-tapes with them, but very often, in particular during, during the lockdown, it hasn't been an option. So I've, I've gotten into, um, you know, I could do a self-tape without any lines coming back and generally speaking, leave enough gaps that I can drop my reader in afterwards and, uh, and just stand off, you know, yeah, so I, I quite I think I'm trying to think if Charlie. I'd have to look at the self tapes, but I think they were. Uh, I don't think there was anything. Oh no, I did have a reader. I forget which one of my sons read with me, but I probably should buy him a drink because I got the part. <laughs> um, but uh, was Charlie on the page, or or oh, how did yeah, you find absolutely. him? He was. He was on the page. It was. I mean. They were, it was the kind of sides that I do remember that a lot of actors don't like because there wasn't a lot of words. Mm. And um, uh, I know some people, again, people think a lot of acting is having these huge, wonderful speeches where you're looking directly at several characters and you're being masterful and then you pull out guns and you shoot, you know, it's, it's usually there's your coffee, you know, that's usually, and um, the, uh, the sides for Charlie, I think were to do with him looking around. Is, is that bit in that scene uh, where he's in the, the site office mm. and, uh, and he's got to be scared and looking around. So I was, I was just kind of reaction, reacting to things that aren't there. Um, but, but it's, but it's beats. And, it, and I quite like those kind of auditions because the filmmaker wants to see, I think any, I think anybody making a film has, has a reasonable, uh, you know, they're not going terribly wrong if they assume that if they're hiring somebody, they're, they're getting somebody who knows well, I've got to remember words on certain days and spit them out and not turn up and be drunk or high or, you know, and try not to stab people. You know, all that stuff, the reasonable stuff that most actors are. So, but I think um, a lot of uh, a lot of filmmakers can't rely on on an actor, particularly like a stage actor. They did, those guys didn't know me. Um, you know, but they... they, they so not having seen you, they don't know, what's this guy? Is he going to be able to do that on camera? So, so to me, it was full of beats and it was full of things. I was, I love those kind of auditions because you're going, oh, they, they want to see this. They want, you know, they, and, and I'm looking at it from very much from a technical viewpoint going, 
yeah, well, that's if I was making this, that's a cut to, that's a reaction, that's a draw away, you know, and it's, you know, so, so from my viewpoint, I want to, I'm throwing stuff up and I'm going, you're going to love this, Mr. Filmmaker. Um, and thankfully they did. They, they, they liked my, my tape and I, a couple of months after doing it, I, I wound up up in Belfast. I finished a, I'd finished a national tour of a play here. Um, and, uh, playing actually a, a, a politician, a, a, a real person, Charlie Hawhey, who was one of the, the great, he's kind of our well, quick shorthand. He's like the Irish Richard Nixon, except he would be, I am a crook. Um, <laughs> <laughs> open your wallet and repeat after me help yourself one of those guys and um but he was called charlie so it was and i went from charlie to charlie uh charlie playing charlie ho he did playing charlie hart and then wound up playing um another character called charlie so nine, 2019 was my year of charlie's it's funny the year year before i had all cops i think <laughs> and then the well, year before that it was all priests with Charlie Hart in this movie, though, I thought it was interesting because there was a lot of chit chat between the other characters. And then when we would go join Charlie out at the site, you know, obviously no one to talk to. And what you were talking to is a lot of reaction, a lot of him trying to figure out what's happening. All of it leading towards that great little punctuation where you, you know, call out, you know, if you're here to protest to the darkness, yeah. If you're here to protest, come back in the morning, which I, I thought was this great dry, you know, character. Like, let me explain to you unknown, unseeable, but possibly dangerous thing. You'll yeah. need to come back in the morning. I'm just the drunk they leave here at night. Whatever you want. This is above my peer grade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that the guys wanted because I was, uh, you know, the, the night, um, I think my last night was the rap party, actually. Not the, no, the, the rap party was the following night, but I'd had to, I had to, I got, I, there was the pre-rap rap where we were all in the hotel having a few drinks, but I had to be on a train the following morning at eight to be back in Dublin to film something else. So, uh, but I, but I do remember them saying, um, because you know, at that stage, there's nothing you can say that they they can lose you the job. So I said to Chris and Brendan, as a matter of interest, why the fuck did you pick me? <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit of research. I'd like to know. You know, is is my how did you hear about us thing? You know, and uh, can't remember which one of them said, or maybe both of them were saying it. it was, they said they really liked liked what I did, and they liked the the, the character. But one of the big things was when they were writing Charlie was they, they needed somebody. They were, there was, then they tossed out a few names of a few actors um, who I would know. I'm not going to share their names with them because the description was, you know, we needed somebody like so-and-so, like so-and-so, like so-and-so, you know, somebody who looked, you know, effectively, practically dead. <laughs> there you go. And, but and I said, yeah. And they, I said, well, so why didn't you get so-and-so or so-and-so and so-and-so? And they said, well, because, you know, they're authentically, practically dead. And we needed somebody who could do stuff and be superhuman afterwards. Yeah. So um, 
I, like I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. So when I'm making that, I was, I was still classed in my early fifties. So it was, I guess it was easier to buy an almost broken man and make him look really broken rather than get a really broken man and make him look really fixed, yeah. you know, which is much harder. So they, and, the, and they, as you know, having seen the film, it's all about the practical effects. Mm. So they could have got a really old guy and CGI'd him. Sure. But, but that's a drag. Because yeah. Apart from anything else, we filmed all of those uh, scenes. The, uh, I, I only had one scene uh, that took place during daylight. No, mm. two scenes that took place during daylight. No, sorry, three scenes that took place during daylight. Three, three setups. And that was in three, that was in three and a half or four weeks on, on the film. The whole rest of the time was at night. And um, it was the most method vampire movie I've ever made. Did, did you the go back to the hotel and sleep during the day. <laughs> did the production move there like in steps, like a little later each shooting day and now you're shooting nights? Or did you boom, go to nights? Well, you said, I'm trying to remember. I, I got up to, I got up to Belfast, spent for the first day there, wandering around, getting poked and prodded and this is your makeup set and this is your whatever. Um, following day, I think I had probably a two hour on set because it was a daylight with John Lynch. Um, and then, uh, then there was a, the first day I was on set with, uh, with the rest, with pretty much everybody where I met everybody. Uh, was the scene where Eugene pays him with the bottle of you know, there you go, Charlie is you know, Charlie I won't let you down, famous last words or whatever and uh, and then the following th then there was just on the schedule, it was just night, so I just, uh, I thought well how do I, I've got to be I'm not needed until um, whatever it was 8 o'clock the following night or 6 o'clock the following evening was the collection so I did what any actor with any experience would do. I, I went straight back to the hotel and got royally drunk. And that meant that I at least slept very late the following day. Um, it makes it sound noble. See, the, the trained professional right yeah, there. You, see, there's a lot of people, you know, idiots, I call them. They'd be down at the gym and the, the steam room, <laughs> eating healthy, you know. And I, no, I, I was... And I'm here to tell you, I wish I had been the person who did all of that. <laughs> yes, but I wouldn't be in bits. The the method called, and you answered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but but then uh, so after that, I mean, then it was uh, I was down for six nights, I think, of filming nights, um, and uh, we had to do weather cover. Uh, uh, there was there was just there was like four nights we couldn't shoot, and then we managed to get another night, and then there was th two nights on standby, couldn't get out of the tent, um, and then I went back home for back to Dublin for a couple of days, and then back up for a couple of weeks, but it was all just night, you know. And the thing is, doing all of that practical stuff at night, back to the CGI thing. You know, if you want to be dancing around all of these, you know, other able-bodied actors and the thing that they're fighting is 
an assistant director with a bamboo pole with a blue ball on the end. You know, that's actually more dangerous at night. And it's going to be a special effects nightmare. And it's going to, you don't want to be messing around with green screens at night and all that bollocks. So um, it's much easier. Just let get, let's get a relatively old man and <laughs> stick a pretend pole in him and get him to run. Well, now that's where I was going to ask you, at what stage in the shooting did you do the impaling? Oh, I can't, can't be exact. Was it the end or did you do it midway? Oh, no, I did. There was a couple of nights where we do. Um, I was, you know, because filmmaking being filmmaking, you know, yourself is quite it doesn't happen yeah. as linearly as as people would like and logically. Um, and I would read. I mean, it's, again, it's the great thing about a part like Charlie. There's no fucking lines. There's nothing to, you know, if you're if you're shooting stuff out of sequence. And you've got lines and you've got to try and remember, okay, so uh, I was angry when I did that line before. So I've got to still be angry or was I quizzical? Well, you know, and so you're doing all that because you want, it's my job as an actor to not give the editor nightmares, you know? But if you're, but if you're an opaque character, that seems easier. If you're just if all you're doing is menacing or being victimized or whatever, it's like silent movies. You, you know, you, you, I would I would look at I would I mean obviously you read the call sheet and you go oh so I'm doing this scene today, but really I would just sit down and look at what I look wound up looking wait until I saw what I wound up looking like in the makeup chair. If there was a lot of blood and a lot of prosthetic, I'd go okay we're late in the scene, and if there was very little blood and very little prosthetic. I go, oh, well, I've got to be kind of caring and timid and, and a bit shattered looking. Um, but once the, once the contact lenses go in and the, you know, the, the bigger blood set, because there was quite a good uh, prosthetic, I think it was on that side, uh, head thing. Um, once, once I saw that, I'd go, oh, yeah, okay, so I'm going to kill somebody now. I'm going to be chasing somebody now. Or I'm, um, had you ever then, had you ever done such an involved death as that impaling? Was that no, new or, that was, or that, usual? It was that was new because it was that involved um, a body cast to have a, a a chest piece that kind of basically fitted me like a like a huge grown up's hand holding you a, a doll around. It's midriff. And once that harness was on, um, I could put on the the altered costume that had all the blood dressing and, and the necessary holes. And then they would screw the either side of the pole on front and back and, and you you run. And um and the thing is, uh the first, again, the first couple of days, and this is this is the thing about uh, practical effects and I'm old enough to remember before I just concentrated on radio started my career in the 80s and 90s when everything was practical effects the thing about practical effects is you've got to be patient practical effects break practical effects look terrific but it takes ages for to get it right operating them under stress and um, that was certainly the case there's a lot. There's a lot of takes of me turning around, going, <laughs> sitting out, running, and going, "Fuck!" 
because the pole would fly up or, or, or you'd be running and you'd hear doink, doink, and you'd look behind and the two bits of the pole would be, oh. <laughs> you know. Um, and there was one, there was a great take where I ran and I'm thinking, keep the excitement off your face because the pole hasn't broken. And I got there and I stopped in front of Nigel and I stopped and both poles just went boink. <laughs> ah, the romance of cinema. Oh, yeah. So eventually I just said, look, I think it would be easier if you stuck a fucking pole through me. <laughs> Shorter night. Yeah. And, you know, I, I said, I'm, I'm a member of equity. I'm not proud. I will do this for money. <laughs> so you do the movie. Poor Charlie goes down. When was the first time you saw the movie with, have, have you seen it with an audience? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it with a, a real audience, which is a terrible thing to say when I qualified by saying I've seen it with my family. <laughs> well, they <laughs> have to say you're audience. brilliant. Yeah. Um, Cause it's, still my television. And um, so we saw it. The original plan was it was going to be uh, at the Tribeca Festival in New York last year. So we were busy organizing flights. And then obviously pandemic happened. Uh, Then there was going to be a premiere in Belfast and I couldn't get to that because everything was closed down. Suddenly, you know, just rolling lockdowns, you know, and I'm sure it's been much the same in different parts of the States. You know, some people close down, some people don't. And then some people go, oh, I caught you. And then everybody's down. And that's the way it was between the two statelets here. Um, so the guys sent me a screener and we watched it on Halloween. My wife <laughs> and I and my uh, three sons and my youngest daughter. And what was your impression as an actor seeing the role? I mean, you'd live the role, mm-hmm. you know, internally in yourself and, you know, on set. But it's very different to see it on the screen with the music, with the effects stitched in nicely. How did it feel different when you um, saw it? Well, first of all, it's always it's always a it's it's always a um, watching anything is 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 something of a surprise because <clears throat> and I've and I've have to say I very seldom watch stuff that I'm in because I've usually uh, I've, I've I've usually I mean it's the lag of things as well it's three or four years often before you know, when you do something before something comes out and um, that tends to be actually animation. It's about two years, 18 months, two years. And I'm usually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm away doing something else or uh, anyway, I, um, when, when I do watch stuff, uh, it, 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 but it, it always strikes me. Everybody walks away from set with a different cut in their head. Yeah. Do you know? And, um, and again, it's the actor's job not to, uh, not to confuse their cut <laughs> with anybody else's, particularly the director's, do you know, I mean, you've, you've got to, you've got to keep that cut in your head, but you know, it's got to play nice. And, um, 
Uh, and and so sometimes you know you you look at stuff and you you go it's just like that famous Kenny Baker thing when he got to the premiere of Star Wars and he turned around and he said no I thought I was one of the bad guys um you know <laughs> I mean I knew I was a bad guy or a pathetic guy stroke bad guy but what what struck me was knowing the script very well. Um, it was how well it, it it translated onto the onto the screen. Very often, you'll know the script very well, particularly on something as as long as a feature. Um, and you'll you'll see it, and you'll go, "Oh, it's in totally different order." And what happened to that character? And oh, reshoots? What you mean? Oh, yes, we did reshoots. Yes, you know, it's that kind of thing. So you you look at something, and it's totally out of whack. Whereas this, the um. There was only one different thing from the script, really, uh, in terms of it being an editing decision. And after that, everything I was looking at was just stylistic and just saying, well, how did you bring this to the screen? So I had no idea. <clears throat> There's some lovely stylistic effects as well as the practical effects. And I found that really um, endearing and engaging, as, you know, because it made it very fresh for me. And the music and everything, you know, when you hear it all in place and you, you know, that's really interesting. But I suppose like most actors, when I'm looking at stuff, I'm not, because I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at it from a viewpoint of really of being a story. I'm trying to look at it from a viewpoint of being a story, but I'm actually also looking at home movies from that time. I spent two or three weeks with all those nice people. Yeah. You know, having fun. So you're looking at stuff and you go, oh, God, yeah, I remember. Oh, that was when she actually hit me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that, you know. And it's, um, uh, and you normally, I mean, you know, when I watch stuff, that's, I would be watching that at a cast and crew screening. You, you know, and so that's, yeah, it's like the whole family getting together and you're going, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you do that when somebody, when other people are watching a film and they're quite rightly going to turn around and go, shut up, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's for, for, for me, it's funny if there's reshoots because it's like home movies from multiple days. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, yeah, it was really cold that time. And although it looks exactly the same from this reshoot, it was very hot that day. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's, I, I, there's one thing I look at, a uh, thing I did um, years ago, and the, the, the reshoot happened uh, about five months after the main thing. And luckily, all I had to do was pick up shots where I'd been, my character had been killed. Uh, so he had to, he'd already been shot uh, and, and he had to fall down. He was in the background for most of the rest of it. Thing is, in the five months, I'd put on, oh, I think about 24 pounds. <laughs> and, um, and the uniform that this guy was wearing when he fell, all the buttons went ding, ding, ding. I said, oh, can you use that? And they went, no. <laughs> was like, How do you hide the fat corpse in the background. <laughs> it's more Joycean when you know how the sausage is made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Morgan C. Jones, it's been a pleasure talking to you about uh, playing Charlie Hart in The Boys Thank from you. County Hell. It's time now for Andrew's five big questions. Five questions that have been specifically selected that when answered right off the top of your head 
will lay bare your soul and let the audience know who is this guy and why is Charlie Hart such an endearing man to see impaled? Okay. All right, here we go. First question. What is your most treasured possession? One of my guitars, probably. Mm-hmm. Electric or acoustic? I'll be telling if the guitars hear me, they'll never forgive me. It's an it, it's uh, it's a Hofner very thin. It's a beautiful 1960 treasured guitar that I really should spend more time getting fixed up. But it's pandemic. <laughs> Question number two: Where would you most like to live if you could just live anywhere you wanted? Right here in Dublin. Right where you are or a special part of Dublin? Well, right where I am. I've, I've, managed, to, I've, I've managed to kill and bury several people from the bank. Um, oh, God, I've said too much. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I'm, I'm really dull. I, I, I'm, I am blessed to be a Dubliner. I'm, I, I live in the finest city on earth. Now, that's not to say I don't run screaming from it as often as I can. But uh, th- this is this is home for me. I, I I love this city and I love this house, and I've put too much money into this damn studio to live anywhere else. <laughs> Question number three: What movie character in all of cinema history? What movie character do you most identify with? <laughs> movie character. I suppose Walter Mitty. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Now, how you take your glamorous self and pour that into Walter Mitty, I don't know. (laughs) That's how you see yourself. All right. I got bone structure. (laughs) (laughs) It's a curse and a blessing. Question number four. What word or phrase drives you crazy? Going forward. (laughs) <laughs> just say in the future or tomorrow <laughs> going forward it's like it's like when if going forward is allowed to catch on people will soon be saying oh remember going backward when I was seven I hate going forward the only thing you say going forward is if you're operating a car wash keep your car going forward <laughs> all right Bonus questions. What to you is a perfect breakfast? <sighs> fried halloumi, very thinly sliced fried halloumi. Um, a couple of uh, plant-based sausages, some mm. scrambled or poached egg, um, mushrooms, grilled tomato, spinach, healthy kind of I, I, I mean, I, I, my perfect breakfast used to be all of the foregoing, but in their bacon and oinking form. But I've recently had to change my diet, so I found great uh, replacements. All right. Next bonus question. If you could come back from having died for only 24 hours, what would you do? I would get as many billionaires onto a bus or a large plane as I could and 
send it right into the side of a building or, well, probably, a, no, it would have to be a building full of bankers. I'd have to be, I haven't really given you, you've only just thrown this at me. I really need time to plan it, <laughs> but it's, it's going to be big. Sounds like it. Spoken like a true Irish wobbly. Okay. <laughs> Question five. Uh, this is the bonus point one. Ireland. Funny or not funny? Oh, funny. Definitely funny. Funny haha or funny? <laughs> oh, in, in every possible way, good, bad, and indifferent, everything, all of us, funny haha and funny peculiar and funny strange and funny unnerving, but mainly funny. I mean, it's actually, it's a nice place to, to, to live, you know, and most people, uh, you know, apart from the complete right-wing bastards, most people just want to have a laugh with you. It's like anywhere. Awesome. Well, Morgan C. Jones, thank you so much for coming on this bloody business. Well, you're more than welcome. I had a really good time. Thank you very much. That was my interview with actor Morgan C. Jones. Subscribe to this bloody business and join me as we go behind the scenes for more tantalizing tales of horror filmmaking. Until next time, I'm Andrew Johnson Schmidt, and that's a wrap.